Welcome to the Gospel Story Podcast. And my name is uh, Dr. Jack Clem, and I'm here with Ben Armstrong. And we want to introduce you to the story of the Bible. And we're going to do that over the next eight weeks by working our way through the textbook called The Drama of Scripture, written by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. So what do you think, Ben? Think we can do this in eight weeks? I think so. It'll, it'll be a challenge. Okay. You've already been down this road before, so you know a little bit about what we're in for. Yeah, I have. I had the opportunity to do this in a, a couple small group opportunities, and uh, it was really impactful for me. So I'm really excited to get to teach this with you, and hopefully it's a help to whoever gets to hear it. Oh, I know it will be, because the story approach, I think, is really fruitful and very productive in a lot of different ways, and uh, touches a lot of parts of our life. So uh, I know it will definitely be a blessing. So so what are we in for, Ben? What, do we, what should we be anticipating in the coming weeks? Yeah, so our, our, our mission is big. We're going to cover the whole story of Scripture. So uh, from Genesis to Revelation, we're going to look at how uh, God establishes his kingdom in creation and how uh, things seem to be going well. And then uh, obviously we know all is not well because we live in a messed up world yeah. now. And we're going to cover how uh, human rebellion in the kingdom uh, leads to the fall. And uh, and then really I think the, the part of the story that we all kind of struggle with is is summarizing the story of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much content. Uh, we usually don't even understand it well ourselves, right. much less to try to explain what God does in Israel to other people. So we're going to take some good time and learn about how uh, the mm. king chooses Israel mm. and really how all of that foreshadows the Messiah to come and really how that's a crucial part of the story for us as Christians. And so I think that'll be really helpful. I'm looking yes. forward to that. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time in the intertestamental period. Mm. I think that's another point of uh, ignorance for a lot of Christians, myself included, until I went through this study and learning a little bit about uh, what happened between the Old and New Testament mm. and how that really cries out for a Messiah. And right. when we start out in the Gospels, we're going to look at how the king arrives and mm. really what what his kingdom is all about and, mm-hmm. and how redemption is accomplished for us. Uh, and then we're going to Look at the current period that we're in, in the church age, the mission of the church, uh, how we are to spread the news of the king and, and what that looks like and how that really fits into the story. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to to end uh, on a climactic note with the return of the king. What mm-hmm. does it look like when redemption is completed, when all is well? What, what will that look like and how does that end the story in a fitting way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we have a lot to cover. Uh, but I think it'll be really helpful for all of us to remind ourselves of how how the, this big story fits together. Oh, yeah, so true. And then uh, what we want to do as well is when we're looking at these different parts of the story, we want to just highlight a couple of key scriptures so that uh, when you think about the act or the period or the episode, whatever we call it, and the book calls it Acts, we can think about a key text of scripture that's part of that. Like, we'll concentrate on Genesis 1 and 2, and then 3 to 11, and then the books of Samuel, which really help us understand God choosing the nation of Israel and their place, and how God uh, worked in their existence. And then we'll get right into Acts, Acts 2. Um, That'll be a great study. And then we'll, uh, as you mentioned, we'll bring it all to a culmination with Revelation 19 through 21, which Mm -hmm. will uh, be an exciting part of our um, study as we see how uh, the beginning of the story um, 
there uh, and and the end of the story come together. Uh, there's a term for the beginning of the story. It's called protology, mm. and then the end of the story is eschatology. So we'll go from protology to eschatology. We're getting some big words already. That's right. That's Ooh. right. I know. So get your dictionaries out. We have a third guest that we failed to mention. <laughs> this is Bobby. <laughs> we'll edit her out. <laughs> but anyway, so. Uh, so Ben, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're a young man, married, and working at the church here. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, I've been married almost for two years now and really enjoying that. And I'm uh, currently about halfway through my Master's of Divinity mm. Studies here at uh, Virginia Beach Theological Seminary and uh, really profiting from that mm. well. And uh, so I, I grew up in a Christian home with believing parents, and um, I was really fortunate and blessed to have that. I uh, I believe God saved me at a, a young age. Mm. I professed faith in Christ, and um, but but really up through my time in college, where I went to Bob Jones, uh, I, I really didn't understand the story of Scripture. Mm. I think I saw the Bible as a rule book, yes, a Bible as a collection of uh, people to either emulate or people to uh, not be like, yes, <laughs> and yes. Uh, didn't really understand <laughs> an overarching story to Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is something that has been refreshing to me and mm. really changed the way I view uh, Christianity and my walk with Jesus mm. on a daily basis and how I approach the Bible, mm -hmm. um, how I certainly try to teach the Bible. But really for my own life, this has been, this has been really a big deal recently. And so, um, yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I went to school, uh, went to undergrad in South Carolina and then came here. To Virginia Beach uh, two years ago. Oh, awesome! Uh, it's been it's been a great time to see how God's been been leading and what He's doing. That's how awesome. Yeah. Um, well, Kathy and I uh, have uh, two children, Jason and Allison. They're growing, and uh, um, Allison lives in the Hampton Roads area. She's married, and our son lives in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, he's still uh, a single man. And then um, we came here actually in 1995 uh, to the Hampton Roads area. That's the year I was born, by the way. Oh, is that right? Oh, dear. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's kind of, that's, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> to think about you as a baby and now to look at you as a red-bearded man. <laughs> yes, but, yes, but, uh, but anyway, uh, we came in 1995. We had the privilege of being part of the team that uh, founded then Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Mm -hmm. And then we moved away in 2009 and um, uh, took up a couple of different assignments at different uh, academic and local church ministries. And then the Lord brought us back here in um, 2018. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so we've been enjoying the opportunity to reconnect with family, uh, our, you know, our close personal family, as well as our, our church family. And coming back to Colonial uh, for us was like coming back to family. So uh, we're really grateful. And then to be part of this um, ministry of um, kind of adult biblical studies at the, uh, the church grassroots level to me is very exciting. And um, like you uh, in seminary, I kind of got my appetite stimulated for biblical theology and um, haven't looked back since then and, mm -hmm. and really enjoy that sort of approach, which the story approach models, and uh, I think it's uh, it's very productive, as I've already commented on, and we'll try to show you along the way those key applications in terms of missional life, as well as uh, just our own personal walk with the Lord and our corporate life. So, so let's get started. Yeah, let's do it.
Okay. Well, what we want to do initially is we want to introduce you just to the idea of the story. And just so you understand how that is a method for approaching the 66 books of the Bible. So when we think about the 66 books of the Bible, we think of them really being tied together in a larger meta-narrative. Now that's a, that's a big word, meta-narrative, but it has the idea of an overarching account. Uh, but what's significant about that overarching account is that it provides an interpretation to the events of the circumstances, of the characters that are in the story. It really then ultimately provides belief and meaning to our own personal experiences. So when we think about the story of the Bible, we're, th- we're talking about something that is really big, it is all-encompassing, and really does help us make sense of these 66 books and help us see God as the main and primary actor and then us as supporting actors in what he's designed for his creation. And meta-narrative um, in larger biblical studies really does provide answers to the big world view questions. You know, we're always wondering, well, like, how did it all begin? Uh, what happened? What went wrong? How can things be fixed? And what does the future hold? Well, the story of the Bible, the Bible answers these questions uh, by recounting the true story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, consummation. And um, and as Ben has kind of walked us already through the uh, the six acts, we'll see in those six acts, these huge questions of life answered. You know, how did it begin? What happened? What went wrong? How does it get fixed? And what does the future hold? Now, what's really, um, I think, intriguing about the story and what was uh, a little bit of a concern to me initially about the story approach is I didn't want this sort of this theme of uh, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, consummation to kind of flatten the, the, the beautiful... Um, texture of the Bible and its, you know, its complexities and its uniquenesses. And our authors do a wonderful job at showing how the story, the meta narrative, really creates this beautiful framework that allows for all of the other uh, different genres and storylines to kind of just come to life in those, uh, in, in that framework. And so I am just delighted to think about this story approach, uh, not flattening, but providing something that really allows everything else in the garden to come to to life and to um, uh, present itself well. Would a, would a good way of uh, summarizing that? I feel like there may be two extremes. One extreme would be to ignore the meta narrative of scripture, yeah, and to spend all your time in the minutia of scripture, right, and, right, and right. to focus on small sections and to never actually zoom out. And look at the whole message of a book, right. much less the whole message of Scripture. That, that's one extreme that we want to avoid. But then the other extreme would be to always focus only on the meta narrative right. and to ignore right. uh, the pockets of tension or yep. the the pockets of the resolution we want to happen but isn't happening yet, or some of the details that uh, don't necessarily fit into the tidy outline of the meta narrative. We we can err easily onto one of right. those extremes, and so oh, hopefully, yeah. uh, hopefully these authors, I think they do a great job, and hopefully um, we'll do a good job in, in communicating what that balance is yeah. of. Of seeing scripture with the meta narrative in mind, um, but then also not being afraid to study the details of scripture right. and to to see how it how it might not necessarily always fit neatly there. Um, 
um, but it all works together yes. towards a common end. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well said, very well said. Yeah, and that that does a very nice job of keeping the balance between those two extremes, and that's exactly what we're talking about. You know, we don't want to. You know, back in the day, we used to focus on the meaning of words, etymology. We used to think that meaning was tied to etymology, mm-hmm. so we were so microscopic. And then, you know, as uh, biblical studies progressed and developed and kind of enhanced and and brought some balance to the conversation, we we pulled back. And we're in that sort of pull back mode right now, I think, where we're seeing the benefit of the bigger picture, how it, the cohesiveness of the story. So, so true. And then, of course, when we are imbalanced, think about how that does impact, for example, just uh, the way we live our life or even the way that we would counsel one another. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to be so focused on a minute detail that we sort of pick out, cherry pick out of the scriptures and try to then to change, you know, someone's thinking or action or behavior, maybe in an improper way because they're not thinking about how the whole story fits together or how that piece fits in the story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely. Um, so the story approach is, is definitely going to avoid, keep, help us keep that balance. You know, there's a, there's a, um, a, a popular story that Leslie Newbegin uh, has circulated about uh, his work in India. Mm-hmm. And um, he's talking to one of his uh, Indian friends, Hindu friends, and um, his Hindu friend says to him uh, along the way, you know, he says, Leslie, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. But then he goes on to say, and I think this is just so profound because, again, keep in mind as I rehearse it, it's the Hindu friend speaking to missionary. Hmm. You know, and he says, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history. Mm. I mean, I don't even know I thought about mm. the Bible in that way. I don't know how about how, No, that's a very insightful comment. Isn't it? I, I just like, mm. I never thought, you know, as a young believer and working my way through scriptures, I knew it, I knew it was special and meant something, but, you know, to think of it in this way. And then he says, um, not only is it a unique interpretation of the human person, as a responsible actor in history. So it's interpreting the events, it's highlighting and interpreting our part in the whole role, and he goes, that's unique. And he goes, there's nothing else like it in all of the literature, religious literature of the world that can stand alongside of it in that way. I just think that's so profound. I, I always get so delighted when I read that. Yeah, that's a really exciting uh, way of viewing the story. I mm-hmm. think even in our culture, we are so... Uh, we're constantly told that the Bible is just a religious book in line with all the other religious books. Um, that's what we're told. And mm-hmm. we're told, you know, the, the Bible doesn't hold any supreme value over any, you know, it's fine if you want to follow that, but, you know, don't, we're just, we live in a, in a culture that doesn't recognize that. And if we're not careful, we can listen to them and believe them that the Bible is just another religious book and that yeah. we, uh, that that is its sole purpose rather than, no, this is a, this is a grand story yeah. that's, real history yes Uh, and it's actually the only comprehensive way of looking at reality and actually understanding it properly yeah and it takes us right back to those worldview questions you know how did it all begin what happened how did it get fixed you know so you know the scriptures are providing lasting satisfying answers to those questions um 
the authors go on in this opening chapter to talk about, uh, they quote also or highlight Eric um, Auerbach's writing in Mimesis. And uh, this is another popular work that you see referenced in like literary studies. And uh, what I thought was really interesting that um, Goheen and Bartholomew were emphasizing from this work is that the biblical story is not like a, like a conventional novel. It's not like Homer's Odyssey that Auerbach is talking about here. And the point that Auerbach is making is that you know the biblical story is not something you can enter into. You lose all sense of your your reality. You suspend your belief, and then you you exit it and you step back into reality. Mm. But but what he's making the point is that no. This is the compelling reality that we step into and, um, you know, we don't step out of it and it doesn't end abruptly without giving us the ending. You know, that's so frustrating, isn't it? When you, you watch a drama or you see a movie and it doesn't, um, it doesn't end the way you want it to end, you know. So, um, so I, I thought that was also very helpful with yes. regard to um, Auerbach's statement and, um uh, kind of gives another perspective on the story approach. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. So, uh, let, well, you can bring this part of the story, uh, the conversation to an end um, here, and then we'll jump into creation. But um, Goheen and Bartholomew make a couple of comments about the nature of a story. And I think you would, you know, as you think about any good story, and we're, we're, we're created to be storytellers, and uh, every good story has a hero or a heroine, and of course, in the biblical story, that is God himself. Uh, but the second thing that he brings out, which is rather interesting to me, is the Bible tells the story of the whole human race in terms of a particular story of one race, that is Israel, and of one person from within that race, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're kind of, you know, the, the nations are in the background, but they're not the centerpiece. And so, you know, this really does help us understand why that small postage stamp nation continues to live on in the ancient Near East in the midst of such a volatile kind of world. But um, that's the perspective from which we're getting this story. We see our Messiah coming from this. And uh, we see how, you know, the other point he makes along with this is that God works with us through community, hmm. you know, and so we're, we're a, a community of storytellers. And then he finally ends with the third piece of uh, a story, a hero or a heroine, the perspective of the whole human race and Christ. And then the third one is to be chosen, to be those chosen people, to be the place where God is, is made known in history, is to be chosen for suffering, for agony, for conflict. And that is the story the Bible tells us. And uh, Newbegin is really big on this in missional living, uh, you know, anything that he's written in the area of missions or missiology, Christopher Wright, who is quoted often in the book, really trying to, to show how suffering is part of the gospel story. And, uh, you know, I think that helps us, gives us perspective to avoid some of the prosperity gospel sort of. And we, and, and you know, we, I think, incorrectly read the story from our, you know, Western sort of United States of America perspective. But that's not the perspective of, of the larger world. So, and then of course, um, we end with just a couple of comments on why it's important. And I think seeing the story approach really does help us understand the authority of the scriptures. It does help us to identify our role 
as the people of God on mission with God. And then also, once we understand we're on mission with God, we realize we can't be conformed to the idolatry of this world. I I came across in preparing for something else this week, uh, a comment by Hole in his book called The Complete Book of Discipleship. And he says this, Worship becomes a key part of discipleship because in worship we break ourselves of the habit of interpreting all events in God's story as centered in ourselves. Mm. And when we become, you know, the story is really helping us to be other, you know, oriented, you know, our, see ourselves in relationship to God and to one another and to the creation that, that um, um, he has put us into and, and uh, so beautifully created. I think that is a great summary of why we should endeavor to learn the, the big story of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, those, are some, those are some big pieces that if we don't, if we don't understand what God's doing in history, uh, we can easily end up with a very skewed version of Christianity uh, worshiping a different God. Right. Uh, and, and really that God is ourselves, or mm-hmm. it's comfort, or it's uh, just a God that we don't even know or exists because we, we haven't actually understood who, who right. God is from what he's actually given to us in Scripture. I thought, uh, I thought they, the author said a great quote in the intro. They said, if our lives are to be shaped by the story of Scripture, which I think hopefully uh, anyone who listens to this podcast desires, that that's our desire, right. that our lives would be shaped by the story of Scripture. Right. If, if God is alive, which he is, Amen. and if he has given us his word, which yeah. he has, yeah. um, we, our lives should be shaped by the story of Scripture. Right. And if we want that to happen, we need to understand two things well. They say, the biblical story is a compelling unity on which we may depend, and each of us has a place within that story. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say, this book is the telling of that story. Mm. We invite readers to make it their story, to find their place in it, and to indwell it as the true story of our world. Amen. So the, I, I think it's really helpful to think of the Bible not as something we dive into for a half hour in the morning and then exit to go into reality. Yes, uh, yes. The Bible is something that should uh, shape everything that we do in life, should right. shape the way we view the, the, get, the people at the grocery store, right. our coworkers, our family. Right. Uh, it should totally shape the way we view uh, fellow Christians uh, at church or you know, throughout our community. Um, you know, the, the story of Scripture should shape everything in our lives. Absolutely. And, and so this, this meta-narrative is a great way to, yeah. to help us do that. Yeah, shaping, giving meaning. And I think also, just like when we, when we see the, the big sort of flow direction of the Scripture's I think it gives us more confidence in the Word of God. You know, we, we feel like, oh, I, I need to go to seminary and get all these letters behind my name so I can, you know, understand the Scripture. But, you know, just a few things can help you really get oriented and oriented well so you can enjoy the Scriptures and um, really grow in your relationship with the Lord. Yeah, to, to add to that, I had, a, I had an encounter when I was in undergrad. Mm. I was out, uh, we were trying to share the gospel with people and I came across one man, and he 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 kind of straight up asked me, "What what's the point of the Bible?" Oh wow! And it kind of caught me off guard. <laughs> that's uh, true. That's good. Uh, I kind of fumbled around for a little bit. Well, hopefully, after this class, you and this podcast, you'll be able to answer that hopefully, question. Hopefully, <laughs> that's the goal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it really got me thinking. Like, I, I don't really know if I if someone sat down and asked me, "What is the Bible all about?" and walk me through it. Right. Um, you know, I think a lot of us struggle with that. Yes. A lot of us struggle to be confident enough in handling the scripture to sit down with somebody and say, this is, this is who God is. Right. This is what he's doing. And here's how you fit into that. Right. I think, uh, as we get further into the story, 
um, seeing how the story of Scripture impacts the way we share the story. Yes, yes. Um, yes. And, and I think we all, uh, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast, myself included, uh, feel profound weakness in, in our frequency and sharing the story with right. others. Right. Uh, we, it's something we need to grow in. And I think it's often because we're not confident in it. Right. We don't know it well enough. Right, right. And, uh, and really... Um, or we think that our role in the story is um, for somebody else to tell that story, not for us. Mm. But I think if we could come away with a real sense of the weight, in a good way, the weight of our missional responsibility in telling the story and our missional, uh, you know, being on mission with God and uh, both proclaiming, modeling, imaging, through creating, all those different ways we can be telling the story that, uh, that, that uh, God has orchestrated for us. I think, uh, I think it's part of human nature. When we hear a good story, we love to tell oh, it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just a simple example. You, uh, you had a song you wanted me to hear just a little bit ago. Yeah. And you, had a, you were excited to share it with me. Right. You felt it was compelling, and I, I enjoyed that. And I think whenever we hear a good story, whenever we watch a good movie, whenever mm-hmm. we read a good book that has a good ending, right. um, we want to tell people about it. And I think sometimes we, we fail to view Scripture as a story, right. and especially as the best story. Right. And when, when we see and understand Scripture to be the best story there is, and we see how we fit into it, um, there's a natural energy that humans have yep. when they hear a really, really good story. Oh, absolutely. And so yeah. I think hopefully this will be a helpful podcast, yeah, absolutely. a helpful endeavor as we, we look at the first act, which is creation. Right, right. Well, there's you know when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's so thick, um, and there's so many wonderful things to uncover. And uh, just uh, let me just hit a couple of things um, to maybe supplement what you're reading in your textbook. And, uh, you know, we, we begin by just thinking about the nature of Genesis 1 and 2. And, you know, we, we hear this often, but it's good to just remind ourselves, you know, from a negative perspective, I, if I were to answer the question, what is Genesis 1 and 2 like, or what is its nature? I would say, well, from a negative perspective, it's not some mythical account of how man came into existence, nor is it a naturalistic evolutionary account of how all things came into being, nor is it some scientific explanation of what God did to bring the world into existence. So from a negative side, I'd say that's not what Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to do. But on a positive side, I would say it's a very highly stylized ancient Near Eastern creation account um, one writer, I think maybe it was even Goheen. I'm not, um, I was working with a couple of different resources and putting all of this together, but uh, a priestly document, uh, as one Old Testament theologian, Von Rod, has said. Um, it's, it's definitely distinguished with unique literary and linguistic features, theological content, historical emphasis. Um, it's a theological statement that begins the story of the Bible with an emphasis on God, his character, his work, his priorities. And uh, as one writer has said, it's a polemic. It's a polemic. And when we, you know, it's a statement that stands out against all of the other false narratives about how the world began. So, you know, why do we start the creation account by looking at Genesis 1 and 2? Well, uh, or why do we start this creation account with what we have in Genesis 1 and 2? And here we see... um, Number one, we see God distinguishing himself as the artist of creation, really emphasizing that he's the sovereign 
over what he's brought into existence. He's the ultimate authority. Uh, we see his power and we see his compassion. And it's kind of interesting to think about how often the creation account is referenced in the rest of Scripture. And, um, you know, the historical books feature it, Job, Exodus 15, 1 Samuel 2, the, pro, uh, the prophets highlight creation extensively, Isaiah 40 to 45. Lots of creation theme emphasis there. You can't read, hardly go too far into the Psalms without picking up creation themes. Uh, the New Testament writers assume the divine work of a creator, Romans 9, 2 Peter 3. And so they're just like the frequent reference to creation in the biblical material calls us to think deeply about who God is and what he does with his world and with his people. And I think ultimately it calls us to praise. Um, you know, it's kind of funny to, or not funny, but fun to think about. I wonder, like, who are the first people to read Genesis 1 and 2? Hmm. And, uh, and we could, you know, scholars will go in a couple of different directions on that. But, you know, if we propose that Moses lived between like 1525 and 1406, and we acknowledge that he wrote the Pentateuch, and there was a little bit of minor editing after it was all composed, not much. Um, and we assume that the account was available uh, then to the emerging Israelite nation. You know, so that, you know, that conquest group of people, they would have been reminded, you know, in taking this land that uh, this is your God. You know, this is, this is the God. The God who spoke this world into existence is the one who's about to gift you this land. So it's always kind of interesting to, to think about it from that perspective. So let me, um, let me just hit a couple of highlights about the character of God. Um, number one, he is good. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 68 says that God is good and does good. And so we know God is good by what he does. And of course, the creation account, Genesis 1, really does emphasize that, that goodness, that good work of God. And you see that repetition of the Hebrew word all the way through the Genesis 1 creation account. And so, you know, the, it, that then begs the question, what does, what, what God created was good in a number of ways. And so how do we see the goodness of God in creation? And I think maybe we could look at it this way. What he made was excellent in its kind. There was really no improvement necessary. Like he didn't, create something broken or it wasn't like a, a, a sale of seconds that he gathered together to, you know, form the universe that we live in. Um, it had practical benefits. So it was good in that it was excellent in its kind. It was good and it had practical benefits. It was good for the created realm. It was good for, for Adam, for Eve, for all of creation. And it was beautiful. So when you think about what God, when it was said, it was good we're saying that it's, it's excellent, it's practical, it's beautiful. And so that's what we have. So God made an excellent creation to be enjoyed. Then we think about God as being transcendent. And uh, well, what do we mean by that? Well, and how is the essence of transcendence communicated in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, first of all, transcendence has that idea of something that is above and over. So God is transcendent. He's over his creation. And... Um, He's placed far above his creation. He's not part of it. He's not an emanation out of it. He's greater than his creation. Uh, he's independent of his creation. And uh, how do we see that transcendence communicated? Well, first of all, by means of his name and by means of the literary structure of Genesis 1. So 
the first line of scripture in Genesis 1, 1 is in the beginning God, and we have the word Elohim used. And Elohim is a, uh, is a name for God. It can be used of gods, it can be used of men, and it can be used of the true God. And in the context of Genesis 1, the term, the name Elohim, really defines the essence of God as a mighty leader above and over his creation. So I, you know, I asked myself, well, why does God introduce himself to us that way? and not by Lord or Yahweh. Well, I think the creation account is really beginning with an, a strong emphasis on, you know, creation is not just the work of any man or any God. It's the work of the God above and over who brings into existence without the help of anyone or anything else his world that he wants us to inhabit. And what he creates is ultimately accountable to him. And so then the literary style of Genesis 1 is also interesting in that you have this repetitious chronological format, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. And I think the orderly pattern reflects the work of a powerful person accomplishing his will in an unhindered manner. You know, I just roll from day 1 to day 2. You don't see, you know, um, you, you don't see, you know, hindrance. You just see God effortlessly bringing into existence in these six days. And then, of course, uh, what we do see, which is rather amazing, is God forming in days one through three and then filling in days five through six. And, you know, he creates the light, the heavens and the earth on days one to three. And then he fills the light, the earth and the heavens with luminaries, fish and birds, land animals, man, and so forth. And so you see the uh, the transcendence of God over all creation. Wow, that's an excellent summary. Like, wow. Yeah, it, it's a, it's it's really humbling, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, really, if you think about stories, uh, stories start out with with something good, mm -hmm. a picture of good. Yes. And yeah. even even if things start out bad, there's usually flashbacks to when things were good. Yes. Um, because I think there's a part of us that's true that yeah, know true. that that deep down inside, uh, things weren't always broken right things weren't always uh you know in disrepair things weren't always um affected by the sin that and suffering and the pain that we see in our world today and uh and so this is just affirming that and giving us really the context to know in the beginning uh, god created this good these really good things um in both form and function yes and we, yeah and we are products of that and i think uh we even see that even in ourselves even being affected by suffering and pain and sin, yep. um, the the ability that the earth has and the creativity the earth has and humans have to to fill the earth with form and function is yeah. incredible. Yeah, it, it is. It really is incredible. Yeah, it is. That beautiful design. And, you know, unfortunately, we get so wrapped up in, like, wanting to know all the scientific questions, mm -hmm. and the Bible is really not pointing us in that way. Now, now you, you mentioned that. I think that's a really important piece. I think, yes. uh the way that it, Genesis is even sometimes presented, it's either uh, it's either scientifically uh, false, and we need to accept something else, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Genesis one and two is a scientific textbook right. by which we can prove every little single detail of right. creation, and we end up almost adding to the text of Scripture right. 
uh, to, to make it do something that you're arguing that it's not doing. Right, right. And so how, uh, you know, how, maybe go a little bit further into how yeah. Genesis 1 and 2 isn't necessarily trying to be a scientific yeah. textbook for us. Well, the way that I've, um, I think you said it well, I mean, that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is not to try to show us how God scientifically engineered the world. But he's, he's really showing us how the artist, God himself, painted this, this wonderful landscape of what we call heavens and earth. Now, personally, and you know, the way that I would articulate it, the way that I've come to find some level of comfort, and I know that it, it still leaves tensions, but the way that I've come to handle it is simply this. I believe that God did something miraculous in the creation. I believe that he did that work in a, maybe a, in a six-day time frame. Um, but I don't come to, but I don't believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to give me all the answers of how that is scientifically engineered. Rather, God is drawing my attention to himself and to the, the order, the design, the beauty of his creation, and really helping me to find meaning in, in the creation as, it, uh, as it's put together and then to find my role and my part in it. <laughs> So God is second now. God is eminent. So he's transcendent, but he's eminent. And so what's the essence of eminence? Eminence is more of the, the presence, the nearness of God with his creation. So although God is far above it, he is active in it. He remains in it. So he is the transcendent mighty God, Elohim, but he is the eminent um, one involved in his creation, Lord God, Yahweh. And so, again, the text emphasizes this side of God's character by virtue of his name and the literary style. Lord God is the, is the name that is associated with Israel's unique identity. Uh, the word Yahweh, um, the Jews would pronounce it Jehovah. It's from the verb to be, God's ever-being existence. And... Um, so the divine name is just so rich in meaning and application. The ever-being God is always near, always available. Uh, he is with us effectively. I mean, I can be with somebody in tragedy, but be totally you know, unproductive or completely ineffective mm -hmm. in almost like high maintenance mm -hmm. in a situation. But that's not God. Mm -hmm. When he's with us in the moment, his presence is effective. Mm -hmm. And so... This is the name that uh, is uniquely associated with the nation of Israel. And the Lord God is the true God of Israel present with his people. And then in Genesis 2, eminence is illustrated by a more of the topical approach to what's going on in Genesis 2. You know, the Genesis 1 account is a chronological format. The Genesis 2 account is more topical and focuses in on day 6. And what you see God doing in day 6 is intimately being involved with Adam and ultimately Eve. And he's, he's with them. He's um, giving them creation mandates. He's supplying for their needs. He's, he's there effectively outfitting them for life within this created realm. And so you see that loving, caring involvement of God in the topical approach to creation in Genesis chapter 2. Now, we go on and we see that God is all-powerful, and let me just hit this quickly, that we see God's power in the way that he calls um, 
life into existence by, you know, creation by word. And there are two words that are used in the creation account. So creation by word is not some recitation of a magical formula like was used in the ancient Near Eastern accounts where a magician would try to manipulate matter in order to bring about a desired outcome. But it's, it's the powerful expression of God's will. What he wills, he speaks into existence. So he said it. God said, and it came into being. But then the other side of that power is illustrated in the fact that what he brings into existence, he names it. So he, he said it, and then he named it. And when you, call, when you give something a name, you are declaring authority over it. Mm. You know, so he said it, he named it, he calls it. So when God calls something into existence, he names it. He takes responsibility for it. Um, and really, that's an assertion of his sovereignty and authority. I'm the creator. I brought this into existence. I'm going to call it the, the stars or the, you know, the various names that were, were given for the created uh, elements. So it's kind of unique, the, the, the power of God seen in his naming and his um, bringing into existence. Then design and order. And I think uh, I've already alluded to the fact that uh, design and order is highlighted in the literary patterns, you know, forming and filling, uh, the topical approach in Genesis chapter 2. You see God as a God of design. He's a God of order. And uh, he's somebody that brings order to the chaos. He brings light into the darkness. And then finally, the, the thing I want to emphasize or where I would like to end is on the fact that our creator God is a personal God. And you see that personal God emphasis with the creation of man. And the pattern of creation is broken in Genesis 1.23 by means of the use of the now expression, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And man is made like God. You know, uh, I think it's a liter from a literary linguistic perspective, I think it's a hendiades. In other words, image and likeness is saying one thing through the use of two things. Mm-hmm. So one through two. And uh, in other words, we would in the image of our likeness. So in other words, like us. Well, in what way are we made like God? Well, I think we are made relationally like God. We've been made in such a way that we can relate to God. I think we've also been made in such a way that we represent God in his created realm. And then thirdly, I think we're made like God so that we vocationally image him in our work. Hmm. You know, we image God. You, you look at the creation mandates of Genesis one twenty six and following, and uh, what man was told to do was to, to rule, to multiply and fill, and to, sub, uh, to subdue. God would bless it. But when you think about it, and you think about uh, the fact that we have been created like God, and we image God in our vocation by creating and redeeming. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you go to work on Monday, what are you doing? In a lot of ways, what you're doing is you're creating. You're, 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 some of you are baking. Some of you are creating unique things that make the world and our life and our life routines operate more smoothly. But then we're also redeeming. We're fixing what's broken, you know, and we're showing people how that they can ultimately find their redemption in Christ. And uh, so we're, we image God on Monday, 
by redemption and creation. Mm-hmm. And uh, exactly what we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2. So, in summary, I would say this. Psalm 145.10 says, All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. Your uh, godly ones shall bless you. So we just, we, you know, when we look at a passage like Genesis 1 and 2, and I've just kind of skated over a lot of it. Hopefully, the reading in uh, the first act will supplement what I've shared with you. But it's so thick. It's so rich. And there's so many angles at which you can come at it. But I wanted to show you God as actor, and I wanted to emphasize us as created in his image and likeness. Mm. And so here we are. The story begins with the artist, and here we are as the actors Mm. in what the artist is painting and creating. Mm. I think think the authors make a great point at the end of the the chapter. They say that the world as God's kingdom is a great way of viewing the world. We can so easily be accused, I think, of uh, Christianity as some like otherworldly religion. Right. Uh, it's not based in reality. And they, they have a great quote. They said, The Bible depicts this created material world as the very theater of God's glory, the kingdom over which he reigns. And as we think about how uh, the gospel story should impact our lives today, tomorrow, right. uh, as we go to work, as we... Uh, as we are in our homes, as we interact with other people, uh, this is God's kingdom. Right. This is where He reigns. Right. And we are under Him. Right. Uh, we we are His subjects. Yeah, so I was wrestling with like that idea. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm glad you brought. I was wrestling a little bit with that idea of kingdom, like thinking where is the kingdom theme really introduced? But if you just think about what we looked at in terms of the character of God as being transcendent and eminent and powerful. Um, he's very much presenting himself as the king. Mm. And this is my kingdom. And you are my subjects in this kingdom. And there's, there's a great story that you're going to be acting out with me in, in, the, uh, in the years of your life. So look forward to um, Act 2 next week with, yeah. uh, with your emphasis and your study there. So Yeah, we'll learn that not all things are good in the kingdom. That's right. Not That's... all things continue to go well in the kingdom. That's but right. What a, what a great way to start out our, our time together. And uh, I'm so thankful for the work you've done. It's a lot of preparation, a lot of thought, a lot of research. And what, what an encouraging reality just at the start to, to see who our God is, to see what he does, yeah. and to, to already have a little bit of hope right. um, that, that we have a place here. And that uh, we're still here. That exactly. God created exactly. Us. Yeah. God creates people every day through the common graces that He's given us, and and He's still a creating God. Yeah. And, uh, and a recreating God. Here yeah. I hope. Yeah. I hope that resonates deeply with everyone, and I hope the gospel story really um, enlivens your hope in the dark world that you might be living in at the moment, and see um, that there is true meaning that um, that we can have and enjoy. And ultimately, that shalom that the scriptures talk about mm. uh, in this in this life, as well as and much greater in the next life. So, thanks again, Ben, for all your work and putting it together. And look forward to next week. Mm-hmm.